Okay, so today, let's compare the two scenes taken out of Israel's history, and let's see what we're supposed to learn. First, let's ask God to guide us and to bless us in this. Jesus, would you please give us wisdom and guide us through these two passages as you have seen fit. Lord, we don't come to the Bible, we try not to come to the Bible as much as we can, expecting it to bend to us. But Lord, we come humbly to your word, submitting to, submitting to it on its own terms, the way it was intended. Lord, would you please show us how this um, applies to us and affects us We love you, Lord, and we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so take a look with me. We're gonna do a lot of reading today. Take a look with me um, at the first 14 verses of chapter 21. During the reign of David, there was a famine for three successive years. So David sought the face of the Lord. And the Lord said, it's on account of Saul and his blood-stained house. It is because he put the Gibeonites to death. So the king summoned the Gibeonites and he spoke to them. And the Gibeonites were not part of Israel but were survivors of the Amorites. The Israelites had sworn to spare them but Saul in his zeal for Israel and Judah tried to annihilate them. So David asked the Gibeonites, what shall I do for you? How can I make atonement so that you will bless the Lord's inheritance? And the Gibeonites answered him, We have no right to demand silver or gold from Saul or his family, nor do we have the right to put anyone in Israel to death. Well, what do you want me to do for you? David asked. This is verse 5. They answered the king, As for the man who destroyed us, that's Saul, and plotted against us so that we have been decimated and have no place anywhere in Israel, let seven of his male descendants be given to us, to be killed and their bodies exposed before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the Lord's chosen one. So the king said, I will give them to you. And the king spared Mephibosheth, son of, of Jonathan, the son of Saul, because of the oath that he, um, <clears throat> before the Lord between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. But the king took Armoni and Mephibosheth, the two sons of Ai's daughter Rizpah, whom she had borne to Saul, together with the five sons of Saul's daughter Merab, whom she borne to Adriel, son of Barzilia, the Maholathite, he handed them over to the Gibeonites who killed them and exposed their bodies on a hill before the Lord. All seven of them fell together or died together. They were, they were put to death during the first days of the harvest, just as the barley harvest was beginning. Rizba daughter of Ai, took sackcloth and spread it out for herself on a rock. It's literally in the Hebrew, made a sackcloth tent or a shelter and spread it on the rock. The inference is where these seven sons died. And from the beginning of the harvest till the rain poured down from the heavens on, on the bodies, she did not let the birds touch them by day nor the wild animals by night. And when David was told what Ahaz's daughter Rizpah, Saul's concubine, had done, he went and took the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan from the citizens of Jabesh-Gilead. They had stolen their bodies from Saul 
uh, or from the public square of Beth Shan, where the Philistines had hung them after they struck Saul down on Gibeah, or, or excuse me, Gilboa. <clears throat> David brought the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan from there, and the bones of those who had been killed and exposed were gathered up. They buried the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan in the tomb of Saul's father Kish at Zelah in Benjamin, and did everything the king commanded, and that and that God answered. Uh, and after that, God answered prayer on behalf of the lamb. <clears throat> what a weird story. Just a bizarre, bizarre story. David has to make atonement for something that uh, a previous generation saw, a sin that Saul had done that had brought suffering on the Gibeonites trying to, to eliminate them. And for atonement, it was, a, it was a classic Old Testament justice thing, an eye for an eye seven innocent men for the innocent people that Saul had tried to kill to try to make this wrong right. And Rizpah, <clears throat> the, the Gibeonites had gone too far. They killed them, but to expose their bodies was to do them great dishonor, was to do their, uh, their reputations dishonor. That was going too far. Rizpah came and she sheltered them. She kept the birds away from them. She tried to honor them. This inspires King David. He thinks, yeah, okay, they died. That's good enough. I need, to honor their, I need to honor their deaths. He goes and he gathers their bones and Saul and Jonathan and he buries them properly um, with Saul's father. And at that point, God answers the prayer and this famine, this recession is lifted. We'll come back to that. We'll unpack it more. But keep your mind on that and let's do what the author wants us to do. Let's go over to uh, chapter 24. And you know what? Well, let's pick it up in verse 10. Let's pick it up in verse 10. David was conscious stricken after he had counted the fighting men. <clears throat> and he said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. Now, Lord, I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I have done a very foolish thing. Before David got up the next morning, the word of the Lord had come to, to Gad the prophet, David's seer. He said, go and tell David, this is what the Lord says. I'm going to give you three options. Choose one of them for me to carry out against you. So Gad went to David and said to him, shall there come on you three years of famine in your land? Just like the story we just read with Saul, right? <clears throat> or three months of fleeing from your enemies. It's like a military invasion and defeat while they pursue you, or three days of plague in your land. Now then, think it over and decide how I should answer the one who sent me, which would be God. <laughs> so David said to Gad, I am in deep distress. Let us fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But do not let me fall into human hands. So the Lord sent a plague on Israel from that morning until the end uh, um, of the time designated, and 70,000 of the people from Dan to Beersheba died. And when the angel stretched out his hand um, to destroy Jerusalem, the Lord relented concerning the disaster and said to the angel who was, who was afflicting the people, enough, withdraw your hand. And the angel of the Lord was then at the threshing floor of, of Ariana, the Jebusite. And when David saw the angel who was striking down the people, he said to the Lord, I have sinned. I am the shepherd. I have done wrong. These are just sheep. What have, they, what have they done? Let your hand fall on me and my family. And on that day, Gad went to David and said to him, go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of, of uh, Ariana, 
Aruana, I don't know how to say that, the Jebusite. So David went up as the Lord had commanded through Gad. And when Aruana looked and saw the king of his official coming towards him, he went out and bowed down before the king with his face to the ground. And Aruana said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? Well, to buy, this, to buy your threshing floor, David answered, so I can build an altar to the Lord that the plague on the people can be stopped. And Ariana said to David, let my Lord the king just take whatever he wishes and offer it up. Here are oxen for the burnt offering and here's the threshing sledges and ox yokes and, and all the wood. Your majesty, Ariana gives all this to the king. And Ariana also said to him, may the Lord your God accept you. But the king replied to Ariana, no, I insist on paying you for it. It will not, uh, I will not sacrifice the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. So <clears throat> David bought the threshing floor and the oxen and paid 50 shekels of silver for them. And David built an altar to the Lord there and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then the Lord answered his prayer in behalf of the land and the plague on Israel was stopped. Okay. <clears throat> Two both very odd stories. Really interesting stories. The first thing to point out here is that clearly the story of Saul, this is a story comparing the failure of King Saul and the failure of King David. So I just want to start off by stating the obvious, and, and, and maybe it's not so obvious, but we need to establish that what this author is trying to get us to see is not the, a, a sinful king versus a pure king. This is not the story it's trying to tell. This is not the story of a bad king versus the story of a really good king. Both had moral failures. Both sinned. Both caused hurt and harm to come on others. Um, <clears throat> the first story takes place well into David's reign, certainly after he showed kindness to Mephibosheth. We know that, so that's chapter 9. And probably before, very likely before Absalom's rebellion, Israel is experiencing a three-year famine, the severity of which is emphasized by the Hebrew language, which literally says, in the Hebrew, it says, a three-year famine, and then in the Hebrew, it says, year after year. It's an emphasis to say, this, it just went on and on and on and on. There's a lot of symbolic um, number, uh, you know, numero numerological language, <laughs> Three in the Hebrew is a number of completion. It's a, it's a, it's a total disaster. It's a total famine. Um, it's hard for us to understand what famines are here. We know generally what they are. But let me, I'll use a more modern word that we would use. We would use the word recession. Uh, the, the, the Israel was in decline. This is a total, um, their wealth is being completely wiped out from this. This is disaster. People are dying from this. It's a big deal. And in the ancient world, in agrarian societies, famines were devastating events. And David wisely senses that this natural disaster is a manifestation of something spiritually out of whack in the land. He figures this out. And <clears throat> this is tough for us. When, you, when, we, when we, from our culture, come to a text like this, we think, oh, how primitive, how um, superstitious, 
you know, to think that natural disasters and weather patterns are linked to God. But I just, whatever your opinion is on this, I just want to point out, David is actually not being superstitious. He's just following the context of his, of, of his, of his history and, and the laws that have been given to him. David's a man of the Bible. Upon entering the promised land, God, through Moses, promises to bless the nations so long as they obey him and joyfully give their lives to him. And when they don't, he says, you're going to know when you're out of whack when I send certain things that are curses upon the land. David is just acting according to what he's read. He's a well-read king. He's a king under the lordship of Yahweh. And to do that, he's got to know the book. And he's well studied. This is um, from Deuteronomy chapter 28. This is um, like Moses' final speech before sending them into the land. Moses says, you will sow much seed in the field. This is if they are not obeying. You will sow much seed in the field, but you, you will harvest little because locusts will devour it. You will plant vineyards and cultivate them. But you will not drink the wine or gather the grapes because worms will eat them. You will have olive trees throughout your country, but you will not use the oil because the olives will drop off. You will have sons and daughters, but you will not keep them because they will go into captivity. Swarms of locusts will take over and all your trees and your crops of your land will be eaten up. The alien who lives among you will rise up above above you higher and higher, but you will sink lower and lower. He He will lend to you. That's key. He will lend to you. In other words, your neighbors, other nations will lend to you, but you will not lend to them. He will be the head and you will be the tail. All these curses will come upon you. They will pursue you. They will overtake you until you are destroyed. Why? Because you did not obey the Lord your God and observe his commandments and decrees that he gave you. David's just reading the Bible. <clears throat> he sees these things happen. He's, his country's in recession. People are dying. He's forced to perhaps maybe import goods from other countries, making him a slave to his neighbors. That's what was at stake here. And he's looking down and he goes, oh, something's not right. How come we're not flourishing? How come we're not being blessed? I was just talking to one of you before uh, in our little break. And we were talking about the disparity sometimes that goes on in our lives between what we read in the Bible that a human flourishing life should, ought to, should be producing. At some point, we as Christians <clears throat> ought, ought to have an honest and hard conversations with ourselves when we look in the Bible and we see a life of abundance and flourishing that Jesus our master promises us and we take account and stock of our own character and lives and we see a recession, we see a famine. It's wise, like David, to go, okay, what's going on here? What's not, where am I perhaps not obeying? What are some consequences that are coming into my life because I'm not following the way of Jesus anymore? That's all David is doing. I'm just trying to point out, this is very practical of David. He's just acting according to his own context and in his own belief system as should we. <clears throat> so David is simply working under the assumption of his own beliefs. And sure enough, David seeks the face of the Lord and God is faithful to answer him. And God says that this recession is due to a grievous moral failure of the previous administration. Also something that we in our culture have a tough time with. 
We don't understand how someone else's sins should be affecting us. In fact, we find that unjust and absolutely absurd. Do whatever you want, we say in our culture, as long as it doesn't affect somebody else. And as soon as it hurts somebody else, then it becomes sin. But, if, but other than that, you do what you want to do. The Bible and ancient people are just more honest. They, they see the world for how it is. The reality is there's some social laws and all of the wisdom literature of the ancients, not just Christian ancients, but all of, like, from philosophy to other religions will cite this kind of moral wisdom or, you know, we have, we believe in this, in this world of, uh, you know, the laws of physics, scientific laws. Well, in the ancient world, they believed in moral laws, social laws. And one of those things is what you do fundamentally affects people around you, whether you like that or not. The decisions you make have an effect on society. How you live your life has an effect on everything else. So in the Hebrew way of thinking, when they saw something out of whack in nature or society or in family, they thought of a unified system. We live in a universe, one verse, one system, and everything affects it, itself. And so they would say, okay, when, they would get, when, a, when a Hebrew person would get sick, they wouldn't just tend to the body, they would tend to the mind, to the spirit, to the body, to, the whole, to a holistic approach because they understood that things are all connected. We are connected. So something that Saul had done is unresolved, is now causing this breach and kind of this domino effect into the promised land. And David is saying, wait a second, we're supposed to be flourishing. We're supposed to be thriving. We're supposed to be this beacon of light. Israel, our nation, God's chosen people, is supposed to be bringing goodness to the earth around us. We're supposed to be indestructible. We're supposed to rise above the challenges. What's going on? Something's not right here. So he does what we should all do when that happens to us. He seeks God. He opens his heart up to God. And God points out, yeah, it's something that Saul had done. In short, because we're, I gotta speed up a little bit. In short, King Saul, in lust for more power, sought to annihilate innocent people. That's what we're dealing with here. He sought to eliminate innocent people. The Gibeonites, first of all, were not Israelites. Okay? If you remember back in Joshua chapter 9, the Gibeonites fooled the Israelites into thinking that they had just traveled this long way and they bartered this peace pact with them all to find out that they were lying the whole time. But nevertheless, this covenant was struck between Israel and the Gibeonites that they would be at peace with them. And God intended to honor that. Saul didn't care about it. He wanted more power. He wanted more land. He wanted more uh, territory. So he sought to annihilate them, to eliminate them. So for all the grievances we might have, I just feel like this kind of adds maybe more balanced to a conversation or to a, a view of the Old Testament that God sent his people in to just wipe out innocent people so, because he, feared, he favored them instead of the people that were already there. This story right here is the story of God demanding justice from his own people for mistreating their neighbors. That's what this story is about. God is bringing judgment on his own people for mistreating their neighbors um, for mistreating foreigners. There are, prob there are now, 
let me just say, there are pro- problematic issues for us Westerns, Westerners in the pages of the Old Testament, to be sure. But I just want to bring balance to an often misconstrued reading of the Old Testament. And we'll, we'll talk more on this later. Most people, uh, most people in our culture think of the Old Testament, especially the historical uh, books, as this barbaric, imperialist nation that goes in and just wipes out these innocent people. Most of which of people in our culture, there's, don't take my word for it, there's science behind this, most people in our culture have not read the Old Testament, and yet they have this impression. And to be sure, there are problems that we should be concerned with, absolutely, that, uh, that only an honest person would ask them about the problems that we find in the Old Testament, and there are answers. But I want to bring balance to that, whatever your, whatever your view might be, that's not the whole story. And I said more on that later. So God is demanding justice and restitution or atonement for a sin committed by a previous generation. Saul killed innocent people who did nothing wrong. Therefore, innocent people from his own line are required to make this right. And this is classic justice. This is eye for eye. The man who murders, his life will be required. We see this all from Genesis chapter 3 on in Genesis chapter 9, who kills somebody, they will have to be killed. Um, Into the Levitical laws, into Deuteronomy and Numbers, if you break someone's property, you have to make it right. This is, and you guys, this is at the core of of being human. This is something that our culture actually right now does understand. Our culture is all about justice and equity and right, rightness, and equality, and what we pay this person should be what we pay this, and all, we're all about that right now. We have, whether you agree with the politics of it or not, or how it's flushing out or not, at the core of it, there's a sense of justice. I want right, we want it to be equal, equal balances. Well, that's something that us Christians can say, hey, so does God. But there's a balance to that. There's a problem that comes along with it that we'll get into in a bit. On top of this, collective cultures like like this are just generally more um, honest about how society works than we are in an individualistic context. I always think of um, when the Me Too movement was breaking a few years ago. And all of these powerful men found to have abused women and rightfully so they went to jail and they or they lost their jobs or that you know all of these things were being exposed around that same time I found it fascinating at that same time that all of this was coming out Hugh Hefner died and he was hailed at the same time that the the Me Too movement came out he was hailed as this as People of person of the year on, on the. I remember sitting at, in Safeway, and I was waiting in the in the line. And on one side of the aisle, there was this breaking story of another man in power who had used his power to abuse a woman sexually. And then on the other side was a, a picture of Hugh Hefner, just glorified as this incredible culture shaping person, this one of the greatest people of the of the Western age. And it was just striking to me as they were on separate, how our world had not put the connection together. In other words, they were saying, if you consume pornography, but it's just a private thing, yay. 
Good, good for you. It's just biological release. It's just, it's just an expression of who you are and the privacy of your... Fine, good for you. But if it comes out and breaks out into the culture and hurts somebody else, that's when you become now a monster. And rightfully so. Those men, they deserved what they got. Absolutely. But at the same time, our culture is fueling this. What you do in private absolutely affects how you see other people. And there's now, it's not popular to say, but there's now just irrefutable science behind the fact that pornography changes a a man's brain to look at women differently. They have to fight against what has become a natural propensity to think of women as a way to satisfy their own sexual gratifications. They have to fight against that urge. I was uh, having coffee with a young man some years ago, and we were going to talk about his um, lust and his pornography issues. And we were in line, and this nice barista said, hello, you know, and, and she was being nice. What are you guys doing today? Blah, blah, blah. And I paid for my drink, and he got his drink, and he came, and he said, see that? Like, women are just, they're throwing themselves at me. I said, what do you mean? And he goes, she was totally flirting with me. And I look over at her, and then to the next person in line, she was like, how are you? What are you doing today? And the next person in line, how are you? How are you doing today? And I said, she's just doing her job. But constant, chronic pornography use had begun to change the way he viewed the world, and society is absolutely affected. Absolutely. I just think the ancient world is more honest about it. We like to live in the illusion that what we do in private does not affect our church or does not affect our families or does not affect society or does not affect, does not affect, does not affect. The Bible is just much, much more honest about that than we are. The reality is the decisions we make have dramatic effects on those around us and, and our children are going to have to deal with that. We are dealing with, we might disagree on how we're dealing with it, but we are dealing with what our forefathers have done as well. We have to live with the ramifications with that and we've got to address it. <clears throat> okay. So that's the sin of Saul. Let me, let, let's, let, let's compare this to the sin of David. Let's, um, let, me, let me go to the beginning of chapter 24 to, get, to, get, to give you an idea here. And again, the anger of the Lord. This is chapter 24, verse 1. Again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he, aside, he incited David against them, saying, Go and take a census of Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, and the army commanders with him go throughout the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and enroll the fighting men so that I may know how many there are. But Joab replied to the king, may the Lord your God multiply the troops a hundred times over and may the eyes of the Lord, uh, of the, Lord the king see it. But why does my Lord the king want to do such a thing? But the, the king's word, however, overruled Joab and the army commanders, so, so they left the presence of the king to enroll the fighting men of Israel. Now, skip to verse 9. Joab reported the number of the fighting men 
of, uh, to the king. In Israel, there were 800,000 able-bodied men who could handle a sword. And in Judah, 500,000, 1.3 million people that could handle a sword. David was conscience-stricken after he had counted the fighting men. And he said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. Now, Lord, I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I have done a very foolish thing. So what's happening here? A little confusing. At first blush, it might seem like God's angry at Israel. The text does not tell us why. But he goes to David and says, I want you to count them. Take a census of Israel. And then David does count them. And then he feels bad about it. And you might think, what's the deal here? Well, um, let, me tell you, let me tell you what I think. David sought to obey what God had told him to do, but I think his motives were skewed in it. You, you know, have, you ever, you know, have you ever done the right thing for the wrong reasons? You know, it's those sneaky kind of sinful things where on the outside you're doing it right. No one could say you're doing anything wrong, but inside... You know it's for your own selfish motive or it's for your own means or whatever it might be. This is kind of what's going on here. God told David to count people, but he's actually amassing an army. Okay, up to this point, let me, let me ask you. Up to this point, Israel had a voluntary army. What are voluntary armies used for? Only one thing. They're called up when they're needed, right? Right? which means voluntary armies are used for defense, defense only. When they're needed, you call them up, they put down their pitchforks and their, you know, their, their, plowing, their plowing instruments and they go, they go to war until the threat leaves and then they go back to their families and do their thing. That's a voluntary army. David is now amassing a standing army, professional fighters. What's a standing army for? What is it? Offense, attack, invasion. David is intending on... David's sin is the same as the sin of Saul, really, or at least a, a, a parked right next to it. He wants more power. He has zeal, nationalistic zeal for his country, and he's going to amass an army to go out and get more land and more territory. And God says, no, this is not who I've called you to be. This is not who I want you to be. Both Saul and David are acting like all the other nations around them, which is power through force. Take what, take it. Give nothing back. It's the pirate code, you know? Take what's not yours and give it, don't give anything back. This is the, they're acting just like all the other nations, and this is not what God is called, this is not what God had in mind for the nation of Israel, for his chosen people. God always intended for Israel to be the light of the nations, not the dread of the nations. Again, this goes back to a core misunderstanding that we have of the Old Testament. Although there are things there that we need to wrestle with, absolutely. But at the core of the Old Testament, Israel was to show the nations around them how a people of God can flourish when they have Yahweh in their midst. That was the purpose of the nation of Israel. Sound familiar? Why are we here in Seattle? To show folks what a flourishing life looks like for a people that have God in their midst and Yahweh in their midst. The law of Moses was and is intended to shape 
people's character, forming them back into what? Where do we start? It's, it, this is all a story. Humans started as, in the Bible, as the image of God. Think of this. Think of God's high view of who you are. That God thought to himself, what's the best way that I can project me and my character and who I am to the whole world? I know what I'll do. I'll make Nathan. I'll make Kristen. I'll make Edward. I'll make Bob. I'll make Isaiah. I'll make Joy. The other Kristen. <laughs> Kristen number two. Or number one, depending however you want to do it. I know what I'll do. I'll make Jameson. I'll make Paul. I will make people, image bearers. How do I show the world who I am, my character, my goodness, my majesty, my loving rule, my generosity, my purity? How do I show the world me? I'll make man, let us make man in our image, in the image of God, male and female, he made them. That is who we are, you guys. But you know the tragic story. We fell from that. We still are the images of God, but we're marred. The same way we see maybe your childhood home. That's not the way it was when you were a child. Have you ever, uh, Paul Tripp uses this example where he takes somebody to his childhood home, but it's dilapidated. And he goes, no, 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 no. That's not what it was meant for. He sees both in one Structure, he sees both the potential of what it used to be and what it is now. That's a great way to look at yourself in the mirror. You are both beautiful and broken, right? And so the, 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 the that's a good way to look at society, beautiful and broken. And so God forms Israel to be this other kind of Adam, a new Adam. I'm gonna form a nation of, of, of um people of Yahweh, and what's going to make them distinct is these kind of laws and these rules that are going to not just for them to obey as in do's and don'ts. You guys, please hear this. The old, this is Jesus, uh, Matthew 5, 17. Jesus said, look, the law, the Bible, the Old Testament are not just laws in the sense of do's and don'ts or prohibitions or, or those types of things. They are laws to be followed that will form you spiritually. Do you understand that? The Bible, shape, when we practice them, shapes our character and makes us into different kinds of people that, pe that everyone around looks in at us and says, Yahweh is with that person. That's a person of God. We have made a mistake in the Western world of of kind of casting the law in the context of, oh, this legalistic, yeah, it's great if you can, but if you, get, if you can't, it's fine. It's all about the grace of God. It is about the grace of God, but it's about the grace of God to do those things. And what gives us access to the grace that forms our character? Practicing what Yahweh said, doing what, what he said. We are a people that do certain things, and those things shape our character and they make us more and more back into the image of God. This is what God's intent for Israel was. I'm going to make you my people. People are going to know by your character and just the kind of abundant, good, full, rich life that you live. 
People are going to look and go, what is the deal with you? Oh, Yahweh is in your midst. It's not going to be through your smoke machines or through your fancy church services or through your incredible mus- you know, musicians or through your, your incredible you know, sp- uh, speakers that, you know, and hipster and all that. It, it's going to be your char- the character of a people. Not just one person who leads the church as the example. No, a whole people. And I'm going to put you in the middle of this land and they're going to look at you and the way you live and they're going to go, whoa, that's what it means to be human, to be really human. Saul and David were leading Israel in an antithetical direction from that, from that purpose. They were starting to be just like the other nations. I'm going to use my power to conquer, to take, to annihilate, to eliminate, to invade, to abuse. That's what David and Saul were up to. Were up to. And Yahweh moves in and says, no, no, that's not the kind of people you are. In the Old Testament, you will not find a command to go out and kill innocent people in the name of God. Did you know that? As, like I said, as there are some problematic things in the, in the historical books. But in actuality, the Israelites were charged with going out and destroying only a handful of the most corrupt nations in Canaan. Okay? God was using the Israelites to bring his judgment on people who were sacrificing their own children who were actively participating in some of the most vile sexual fertility rituals that are in recorded history. God was using Israel as instruments of judgment to judge an evil and vile people, but only a handful. He didn't say just go in and just annihilate folks. In fact, if you want to read it, Numbers, uh, Numbers chapter 20 gives the short list of these are the nations you're supposed to go out. And he says, and others, your other neighbors, you are to seek peace with them. Seek peace with your neighbors. Excuse me, Deuteronomy chapter 20, not Numbers. If you want to go look it up. To the other nations, they were to pursue a peace pact. Another thing that, uh, this, um, that what the Old Testament isn't is God favoring Israel and hating everyone else. No, God chose Israel to reconcile the world back to himself, thereby healing the human broken condition. That's what Israel was for. And at the end of Joshua, just to put a cap on this argument, we can, there's so much more we can say, but at the end of Joshua, God warns Israel that God will send other nations to judge them the same way that he sent them to judge other nations if they don't obey. He's not favoring them in, a, in the sense that he, they, get to, they get to do bad stuff and get away with it. No. He says, watch it. You're under the same kind of watchful eye and judgment that everyone else is. All that to say, God always intended that Israel point the world to him through projecting the right image of him, not for the world to live in dread of them, that they're going to come and conquer them and bully them and eliminate them. And those. God is saying, no, that's not, and in both of these stories, Israel's kings are becoming more like the nations around them. So we've got Saul that's sinning in one way and David that's sinning in a similar, in a similar way. So 
if both Saul and David had significant moral failures, is there a difference? Is there a difference between David and Saul? And if there is, what is that difference? And the answer is yes. And should there be a difference in you and me between how other people do things? And the answer is absolutely yes. But notice here that the text isn't necessarily emphasizing behaviors, although it mentions behaviors. The text is emphasizing a heart posture from which those behaviors come. David sinned, Saul sinned, but David did some other things that, the result, that were the result of a character and a heart posture that God wants all of us to have. How are you and I going to stick out in this culture? Well, first, notice David, in this particular instance, David repented before he was confronted. Okay, verse 10, David was conscious stricken. The Hebrew language is much more beautiful than this. It says his heart dealt him a, a fatal blow in the Hebrew. That's how it can be translated. His heart nailed him after he had counted the fighting men. And he said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. Now, O Lord, I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I've done something very foolish. This attitude was not found in King Saul at all. The last time that David confessed, in fact, even used these very words, I have sinned. Do you guys remember when it was? It was with, yes, it was his other infamous major, major failure with Bathsheba. He had an affair with Bathsheba. Then he had her husband murdered to cover it up. And then he took her as his own. And it was just this incredibly vile, horrible thing. But David, in that instance, did not confess it. He hid it. And went on and tried to cover it up and keep it as a secret. And God sent a prophet to him, Nathan, to grab David by the scruff of the neck and shake the repentance out of him. <laughs> it was there, but it had to be shaken out of him a little bit. Nathan just gets this direct story and says, you're the man. And David says, okay, I've sinned. Here we see growth in David. David now, before Gad or any other prophet can say anything to him, David's own heart, he's self-aware. And here's what I want you to notice. Compare the sins of David. His sin with Bathsheba, obvious, right? No one accidentally ends up in the bed of another man's wife. You don't just, you know, oops, how did I get here? Like, that was obvious. This one, though, is a little bit more sneaky, because David is just doing what the Lord told him to do. Go count Israel. I'm just, I mean, he could, you know, we, we do this, don't we? We say, well, I'm just going to go and do this really noble thing. And we wrap our real motives in noble intentions. And we say something, well, it's just for my family. Or it's just for this. Or I'm going to go do that. But we know what we're really doing. But few of us are self-aware enough or honest enough deep down to actually admit, actually, here was my motive in that. It wasn't as selfless as you thought. This is really uh, easy for us Christians, especially in the church world. I was talking to a friend of mine who's also a pastor who was in a staff meeting who they came up with a, another great idea and the, and the staff was working over, like they're like working, working like 60 hours a week but they came up with another idea, and he's like, I don't know what to say. I'm just burning out. My family is, you know, my, my wife's getting frustrated because she's not seeing me very much. And I was like, well, tell them that you can't do it. 
And he's like, but, it was, but it's for the Lord. And I was like, it's a, you're on a church staff. Everything's for the Lord. I've been on so many church staffs. There was not one bad idea. I, don't, I cannot remember when we're brainstorming and getting creative that we ever came up with an ungodly idea. It's so, it's, so it's so easy to just keep grinding keep, and ignore things like Sabbath, rest, things that help our characters to grow, solitude, service to others, loving our families. We forget these things because what we want, I mean, if we're honest, I want more people to come. I want more butts in the seats. I want, because this is how we measure success. This is how we stroke our egos. It's so easy to do this. David was self-aware and honest. He finally, his heart struck him and he said, you know what, I can't deny it anymore. My motives in this are not right. I know what I'm really doing here. I know, do we, do you and I, as followers of Yahweh, do you and I have the self-awareness to, to say, I've, I've sinned? Maybe not outwardly. Maybe I'm doing everything right on the outside. But inwardly, I know myself enough to know that I, I'm not doing this right. I'm telling, my, I'm telling my kids to do something that is good, but I know what I'm really wanting them to do. It's so that I can do this or so that I can do that or whatever it might be. First of all, David was self-aware and he confessed his sins. Saul did not have this kind of posture. Later, David would write in one of, the, in one of his psalms, he would say, behold, talking to God, you desire truth in the inward parts. You desire truth in here, first of all, in here. Friends, Christians, how we're going to stand out to the world, how we're going to stand out to our neighbors, is not just by being truthful on the outside, but being truthful as a character trait. We're marked by truth. And that means honesty. We're honest about what's really going on. And that will stand out. David was a sinner, but he was also self-aware, sensitive, open to conviction, and he confessed our sins. You are all, we are all sinners. But can we be open? Can we have that kind of heart posture? Secondly, not only was he self-aware and, and honest, he has a very insightful knowledge of the character of God. This, is, this just um, really was so, something for me to see this in David. Notice what he says here. Um, Saul did not have this. He's got this intimate wisdom in the character of God. Look at verse 13. So Gad went to David and said to him, Shall there come on you three years of famine in your land? or three months of fleeing from your enemies while, you, while they pursue you, or three days of plague in your land. Now then, think it over and decide how I should answer the one who sent me. Okay, before we get into David's really unique insight into the character of God, let me explain what God is doing here with all three of these options. Okay? God comes to David in response to David's sin and says, okay, you're going to have to be disciplined for this, David. You're gonna have, I'm going to mete out some discipline to you here. But I'm going to give you a choice. Do you want three years of famine? We've already talked about that. This is three years of recession, economic disaster. Or do you want three months of military invasion 
and defeat? Or do you want to do three days of pestilence? Now, every one of these options, regardless of David's choice, understand this, what is God doing? He's taking away Israel's ability to become an imperial power in the region. And all three options. Okay? Um, Think of this through with me. Think of another three years of famine. As we said earlier, this, was a, this would essentially make, as Moses said, this would make David have to import food for survival from other nations and become subservient to them and subjugated under them. They would become basically slaves or a colony under a larger power. And they wouldn't be able to take on more territory like David first wanted with amassing this 1.3 million person army. David would be rendered crippled in that regard. Think of a military invasion. Same thing. If David sent out his armies, they'd be slaughtered for three months, rendering them again crippled to do anything but defend themselves. And same with pestilence. Some kind of a plague would kill a lot of people, but also hurt every, every, every sector of life, including the military sector in David's, in David's land. That's what God is doing. Do you, see, do you see this? He is eliminating Israel's kind of national idol to become a superpower in the region. He's saying, I'm not going to let you do this, David. So these, all three of these things, I'm still going to accomplish my purpose. I'm going I'm I'm to thin this out so you cannot become this invading bully on the block. You can't throw your weight around. It's because I'm not talking to you. You are to be a different kind of nation. One, isn't the, the one that isn't the bully, but one that uses your blessing and your power to, bring, to build people up, not to tear them down. Now notice David's wisdom and insight into who God is. Look at verse 14. This is so powerful. David said to Gad, I am in deep distress. Let us fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But do not let me fall into the hands of men. Okay, the first two options, famine and military invasion, um, are both a form of falling into the hands of men. And David remarkably is saying, I'll trust the mercy of God any day over the mercy of man. Do you understand that? This is really interesting. So many people through the ages, and I dare, I dare say many of you and me in this room, because it's very hard to do, Many of you and I cannot reconcile multiple aspects of God's character rightly. You know that. God has different dimensions of his character. And it, let's just say it, it it's kind of next level to be able to reconcile and show how those things fit. Let me give you an example. Um, God is just. He demands justice. God, it's part of his character. He will make wrongs right. He will. He is the judge. And we all know it. We have to. We want a perfect judge. In fact, when you look at, you read the paper or watch the news and you see everything that's going on in the world, what do you, what do you instinctively cry out for? A perfect judge who can make this right, who can finally cast out evil, who knows what's good and what's wrong perfectly. But where do we have a problem with this? As, uh, I can't remember who, oh, Timothy Keller, he used to say this, if there is not a perfect cosmic judge, what hope is there for the world? 
If there is not a perfect cosmic judge, what hope is there for the world? Right? We need someone that's got a perfect view of things, that can see what is truly right and truly wrong, that can look into the human heart and even divide motive, that can see it all. There's nothing hidden, no gray area. We need someone that can see it and who's perfect. But Keller goes on. He says, but on the other hand, if there is a perfect cosmic judge, what hope is there for anyone? You know what he's saying here? He's saying it's kind of a next level thing in our walk to be able to reconcile God's justice and what's another attribute? God's mercy. Other people, we see God one-dimensionally towards mercy. He's loving. He accepts everybody. He's merciful. David has got this way of he understands how they both work. David has sinned. He knows he, he deserves justice. He knows he deserves God's punishment. He knows that God is doing the one that's punishing him. God sees his motive and God's going to bring punishment. And yet still, David says, I'd still rather be in God's hands than in man's hands. I'd still rather be in God's hands than in man's hands. Because God is much more merciful than mankind. David understands that God's mercy... Well, isn't there a Bible verse to that? James 2.13, didn't I write that down? God's mercy triumphs over justice. Mercy triumphs over justice. God is just. He must punish sin. We just read that in the last story. An eye for an eye. Seven men of Saul for this, the Gibeonites that he hurt. He is just. But David says, at the end of the day, I'm going to trust him because he's, he's merciful. He's going to stay his hand. There is something about God that wants, he loves us so much, he wants to save us so much that he's going to find a way for mercy to triumph over his, just, over his judgment. That's what David is saying. What an incredible insight. In, in my mind, this is spiritual maturity. This is someone who's been walking with God for a while. This is someone who has intimate knowledge of the character of God. These are not something you learn just from principles. This is something you learn from experience. Moses understood this, and this is no doubt where David is getting his, getting his theology here. Moses understood this. In Exodus 34, it says, Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with Moses and proclaimed his name. The Lord, uh, his name the Lord, and he passed in front of, no, uh, in front of Moses. And here's what God said. The Lord, the Lord, that's Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining his love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin, mercy, love, chesed, steadfast love. And yet, watch, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the fathers and the third and the fourth generation. There's these many dimensions of God that they fit together in his person. And you might be able to read a verse like that and understand it, but it takes walking with Yahweh to understand how this works. David knows Yahweh so much that he knows, I know he's going to punish me. I'm not, Yahweh is not the type of guy that's going to go, oh, you know, David will be David. Israel will be Israel. Boys will be boys. Mankind will be mankind. I'll just, you know, they'll grow out of it. No, God knows this is something that they will grow into, not grow out of. So I need to, God's going to punish me for this. But 
I also know God's merciful and he loves me so much, he's gonna find a way for his mercy to triumph over judgment. I love it. I think that makes us, a right understanding of God makes us stand out to our neighbors. Not just a right understanding of ourselves and self-awareness, but God-awareness that doesn't just come from theology, but comes from walking with God over a lifetime. Do people in your block, do, pe- do your neighbors, do your coworkers know that perhaps he doesn't, perhaps they can't answer these arguments, or perhaps they don't have an intelligible answer for this controversy, controversial apologetic thing, but I know one thing about her, she knows God. She gets him. He walks with God. He lives with God. Any and all of you, Renee, you, the one behind you, the person on your right, the person on your left, do you know God? Do you experience him? Do you spend time with him every day? Can people say Yahweh is in their midst? Can people in Seattle look at us as we go out from here and go, something's different about, they, something's different about them. It's not that they have answers to all the controversial stuff. They, there's a quality of life that comes from being around a certain kind of person and growing into that person. Finally, David is willing to sacrifice himself for the people. Saul did not have this. Look what he says. And this will be a quick, this will be quick. So the Lord sent a plague on Israel from that morning until the end of time designated and 70,000 of the people from Dan to Beersheba died. When the angel stretched out his hand to destroy Jerusalem, the Lord was, look at this. By the way, I won't mention that or I won't comment on this, although I want to. But look at it. The Lord was grieved. So what does it mean? David was right. The Lord's meeting out judgment for these three days. He's caused a plague. And the Lord is grieved in his heart over the judgment that he's meeting out. Rightfully so. He's grieved and he says to the angel, enough. I, I, can't, I can't do it anymore. Enough. Withdraw your hand. It reminds me of Hosea chapter 10 where God is going to punish Israel. And then, I can't remember, if some verse he says, but how can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I, how can I not love you? Oh, I love it. He's grieved. He says, enough. And the angel of the Lord was then by the threshing floor. And when David saw the angel who was striking down the people, look what David says. David says, I'm the one who sinned and done what's wrong. These are but sheep I'm the shepherd, let your hand fall upon me and my family. You do not see this attitude in Saul or the kings around. How did David get this? Perhaps he got it from a glimpse into the heart of God. He knew about sacrifice. No. God will, make, God, God will not make David pay this time. Instead, what he tells David to do is buy the threshing floor and build an altar on it and make a sacrifice there that will assuage, that will bring justice for now. And by the way, side note, that this threshing floor will end up being the 
site of Solomon's temple. Most of you probably know that, where sacrifices for sins will be continually offered in the form of animal sacrifices. But even, I mean, right now, do you feel how inadequate that is when I say an animal sacrifice for what David had done? It just doesn't. A threshing floor is a place where they separate wheat from the chaff. That's an agrarian theme. You don't even need to know it, really, for, this, for our purposes today. But it's a place where, it's a place where an all, or a sacrifice is, is, is offered to atone for sin. I'm going to tell you that, but we're running out of time. Renee, I can't have a conversation with you right now, okay? So, he builds this temple... But 1,000 years from this event, one of David's great, 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 14 great grandsons, Jesus, the son of David, he would offer the sacrifice that will be an end to all the other sacrifices. He will. David, David's got this heart to say, take me, hurt me instead of them, punish me instead of them. And man, that. He, through, his, through his lineage, someone would be born, the Messiah, God himself, with God's heart would be born that would say the same to God on the cross. Take me and spare them. And this translates to us. Because if, when you realize that someone died for you to go free, you're going to live that out in society. Remember, everything's connected. This is... The, This is the problem with what we've done to Christianity. We've annexed it off of of society. Our society says, go ahead, you be a Christian. But in this gym, only on Sundays, between these times, but don't you dare bring this out into the public public square. You You be a Christian, but limit it. Take the power out and just be in a corner and cower. And open our Bibles and do this thing. But then we go out, we act like everyone else. No, 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 no. We are to be different. And people are to see that we're different. Jesus said, you are the light of the world. That's who you are. Let your light shine. By what? By our music and our concerts and our events? No, by the, he said, let your good works through a good character be seen by everybody. This is what we're going to get into when we get into Matthew. Get out there and shine your light. How do we shine our lights? Well, in this text, be honest with yourself. He's not expecting you to be sinless. You notice that. David messed up real. I don't know anybody in this room that's messed up as bad as David. This is not just one moral failure. This is his second run at more. This is a second moral failure here. But he was a man who was honest. He said, I've sinned. Secondly, he knew God. He knew God. He's walked with God. God, your mercy, you love us so much. Even though you're going to judge, even though justice must come, we have to have a great judge. Still, this great perfect judge loves us so much, will find a way to save us so that mercy will triumph over judgment. I'd rather be in your hands than the hands of man. God. Okay, that will stick out in this society. Absolutely. How you view God, your idea, uh, R.C. Sproul says, your idea of God is the most important idea you'll ever have. It affects everything. It affects the way it, it must be right. How does that come? Through study? Sure. But through walking with him. Thirdly, when you walk with him and you understand that his mercy 
triumphs over judgment through his own self-sacrifice. You will live that way out there. When someone has to do something that no one else wants to do at your job, you'll say, here, I'll do it so that they don't have to. That will stand out. Even though you're not getting paid more or getting promoted or getting paid extra, yeah, I'll do it just because I don't want you guys to have to do it. I'll stay later. I'll come in early. Sign me up. I'll do it. In your family, you'll teach it to your kids. Where do we get it from this right here? What we're about to celebrate is Jesus said, I will do what no one else can do or wants to do. I will do it so that you don't have the judgment of God pour down on you. I'll take it on me. We bewail the immoral society of Seattle. I say we need to love them to the point where we say, yes, but I was vile. I'm an enemy of God too, and he died for me. How can I love these people in that way? How can I see the people at my work as both broken and beautiful? How can I go to society and say, yes, because that's human, but no, not the way you're doing it, but yes in Jesus? How can we use that algorithm when we look at society? Yes, but no, but yes in Jesus with a motive of love. People, when we do those things and we practice these things, people will look at us and they will say in their own way, maybe not these words, but they'll know Yahweh, God is with those people. God is walking with those people. That person knows God. Not about God. That person knows God. 